Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Breaking news for you this morning. In the last few minutes, Peter Goodfellow has been re-elected as National Party President. We will take you live to the National Party Conference. And then, what should be our priorities for the government's grand plan to reconnect Aotearoa with the world? And as Christchurch's mayor prepares to step down, Leanne Dalzell assesses her city's progress. A lot of people have said to me, this is the place of the future. This is the place where I can see myself moving and uh, establishing myself here. We'll have that interview shortly, but first up this morning, National has just announced Peter Goodfellow has been re-elected as party president. Here's Judith Collins. Uh, the board has met this morning and the president is Peter Goodfellow. And today marks the beginning of our campaign for a party vote victory in 2023. Judith, we're right behind you. So that's National Leader Judith Collins and Party President Peter Goodfellow speaking just a few minutes ago. One News political reporter Mikey Sherman is at the conference for us this morning. Tēnā koe, Mikey. Talk us through the significance of Peter Goodfellow's re-election. Good morning, everyone. Look, this reappointment for Peter Goodfellow as the party president uh, is significant because there were genuine questions surrounding whether or not he would retain that role. And that's because he has faced criticism. Obviously, we've seen the National Party in a state of turmoil for over a year now. He has been at the helm of that party as the president during that time. So whether or not he provided enough leadership has been questioned and not only during the election campaign and that dismal election night loss but also in terms of candidate selection that that sort of stuff goes through the party president and the board and obviously of recent we saw uh, Upper Harbour a candidate Jake Bizant uh, heavily bring the party into disrepute uh, over some of his actions so there was a lot of criticism there was some challenge there towards Peter Goodfellow uh, including from former uh, MP National Party MP and Speaker of the House, David Carter, and bombshell shock. Uh, he retired uh, from the board today, effective immediately. Obviously, we can take that as a vote of no confidence in Peter Goodfellow. But overall, uh, Peter Goodfellow has retained the support of the party board, and he will remain on in that position. Yes, an interesting decision, Mikey. You've been at the conference for the last couple of days. Can you give us a sense as to how the National Party's membership is feeling about their party's progress at the moment? Yeah, and look, that's one of the things that I love about coming to the party conferences. We often, you know, in Parliament, we're covering the MPs and the caucus and what's happening there. At the AGM and at the conferences, you get an opportunity to speak to the members on the ground, the supporters, the loyal uh, supporters who give up their time and energy uh, to back the party. So it's good to chat with them. Look, there is a, a, an expectation of uh, zero tolerance towards any more nonsense, any more scandal, backstabbing, uh, leaking from within the caucus. That certainly came through loud and clear from the party membership and we heard from uh, Judith Collins as the leader and also Peter Goodfellow as the party president on Friday in their opening remarks that they acknowledge that is the mood of the party uh, they acknowledge that you know there needs to be some discipline, professionalism they need to support each other as a caucus uh, so I think that message has come through loud and clear from the party membership and the leadership has acknowledged it. We are expecting leader Judith Collins to make her address at midday today what are you expecting her remarks to include? 
definitely we can expect her to talk about demand the debate. That's obviously been the key messaging from the National Party of late. And, you know, when I spoke to some of the party membership, they feel as though that messaging uh, is getting cut through with the public, that it's gelling with the public. A lot of those topics like the ute tax, he pua pua, uh, the funding of the mangrel mob, that type of, those types of issues that we're hearing through demand the debate. I think we will hear that again. I also hope that we hear a little bit of uh, perhaps a policy announcement from Judith Collins, something to sort of, you know, get them on the front foot when they uh, head back to Parliament uh, tomorrow. Uh, and so we'll wait and see what she has to say. Love your work, Mikey. Tēnā koe. Thank you so much. That is One News political reporter Mikey Sherman live at the National Party Conference in Manuko. Coming up on Q&A, we ask Sir Mark Solomon what makes a good leader. But next, as the government gets ready to unveil its plan to reconnect New Zealand to the world, what should life look like after all Kiwi adults have had access to the vaccine? We welcome back to Q&A. On Thursday, in a special two-hour event, the government will present its framework for reconnecting New Zealand to the world. The roadmap has been developed with advice from a team of experts led by epidemiologist Sir David Skegg and is keenly anticipated by business leaders. Kirk Hope from Business New Zealand is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Just how important is this plan? Well, it's, it's really important for the government to set out um, the clarity and transparency that I think particularly business needs um, to understand what the plan is going forward. You might recall that the government have been criticised for not really having a plan uh, as we advanced through COVID. This is their opportunity to provide uh, that clarity, clarity and transparency. So what areas do you want to see clarity and transparency? In? Well, I mean, I think some of the criteria around what reopening, uh, what the criteria around reopening would be. So, for example... Uh, would it be 80% of the population vaccinated? Would that be one of the criteria for starting to reopen to the rest of the world? Um, what's the criteria uh, for, for example, uh, not allowing uh, the uh, the virus in. Are we going to um, are we going to remain uh, a, a country that wants to see COVID uh, out for all time? Um, and I think probably a couple of other areas: clarity around and transparency around MIQ. Um, uh, how that might improve, whether the government would in, uh, encourage and indeed um, support private um, MIQ facilities mm -hmm. or the development of, of MIQ facilities that aren't hotels if we're going to have to live with COVID for a long period of time. And the third area, I think, is, is immigration and the immigration reset. What, is, what do the changes to the border mean for that immigration reset? I, I understand why business wants certainty, but surely there is only so much certainty that anyone can give at a time like this, when we're in the midst of a global pandemic and when a strain like Delta is forcing governments and leaders to reassess their plans constantly. I agree. That's why I said clarity and transparency as opposed to certainty. I think the certainty that the government can provide is in the framework that they put in place mm. and being clear and transparent with you know people who are engaging with that framework. So um, we've seen uh, the Wiggles, the Wallabies um, and now people being able to return uh, through MIQ who are going to Expo uh, uh, 2021. I think those are all actually good things. We know that we can manage people coming across the border, but what does that look like in a much more, with a much more open set of settings? So David Skegg's advisory group is made up of public health experts and some data experts. Is it too crude to say that we are essentially trying to balance public health concerns with economic concerns when it comes to reopening? 
Yeah, I think we've always, I think the government, that's, a, that's something that the government has always had to grapple with and generally got the balance right. I mean, we look at what's happening in the New Zealand economy at the moment. Actually, we don't have declining pains, we've got growing pains. Now, I'd much rather have those, frankly, as a citizen, as a representative of business, than, than you know, if we were going through economic decline. Um, so they've always had to balance that and a strong, they've, you know, they've had the position that a strong health outcome is going to lead to a strong economic outcome. But what are the criteria for reopening to the world because we've got a lot of exporters. Our exports were down about 8% last year. Um, we've got uh, horticulture uh, lost about $100 million because parts of the border remain closed. Uh, we, we've got exporters who need to get out into the world and then get back. So those things are all critical to our future economic growth uh, and we'll have to manage them or the government will have to manage them in the context of the pandemic. This might seem like a crazy question to some, but as you alluded to, many people have been surprised with just how well our economy has done off the back of COVID-19. Do we need to rush to open up? Do, 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 if, if we have 80 or 90 per cent of the adult population vaccinated, but Delta is still a threat internationally, do we actually need to open the borders? I think with the Pfizer vaccine, what we need to understand is, you know, how effective it is, for example, against any variants as they arise uh, in the rest of the world. We do have the advantage of distance, of course, and mm. in, because, you know, we're, we're a couple of islands or three islands, um, we are able to take a little bit of time to manage through um, getting some of these things right. Uh, and, the, and the government has generally done that quite well. I mean, I think the, the, the point that I would make is that that can only go on for a, a certain period of time. Mm. Yes, we have time, but we do, we do need that um, clarity and transparency out of them uh, uh, this coming week. Is there any scenario then, once all adults have had the opportunity to be vaccinated in New Zealand, in which you would support keeping the borders closed with the current settings? Oh, look, I mean, I think if a, a new variant um, occurred in which uh, it wasn't demonstrated that the vaccine uh, was effective, that, that would clearly be a criteria for keeping the border shut. I mean, I think the other thing that, that um, can continually be improved is the way that we manage outbreaks. Um, so if you think about the hard lockdown that occurred in March last year, and then the circumstances in which um, you know, we had outbreaks in Auckland and, and in Wellington, for example, potential outbreaks, th those were iterative changes to the way that they were managed. There were iterative changes to the way those were managed. We have to keep getting better at that. We can do that with um, more bulk testing, like saliva testing. I think the Ministry of Health have been incredibly slow to approve saliva testing as a mechanism for helping manage outbreaks. Um, the other thing is contact tracing. We could use multiple mechanisms for contact tracing. We don't need to just rely on the cure are scanning, but it does require the Ministry of Health and the government to, to confirm those. Okay, so, so talk to me a little bit more about your concerns with the contact tracing there, because obviously the government in the early stages of the pandemic was criticised as not being prepared to have contact tracing on the scale that we would require to respond to the pandemic. You, st you still have some issues with it? Uh, well, I think what you've seen is actually there's been a decline in, in the use of the scanning, uh, QR scanning. So I think, mm. I think there is an opportunity to use um, a whole, whole um, different sets of uh, of technologies to be able to help manage contact tracing and, and do it at scale in, in a more complete way than we're doing it. We just have to be open to it. Who should we be letting into the country? Well, I think for from from a business perspective, obviously critical workers have been really necessary to keep parts of the New Zealand economy operating. So this is the 
types of people who would come in to uh, maintain uh, our power plants, for example. Uh, we need to keep those people coming across the border. Uh, currently, we have uh, a group of auditors who aren't able to get into the country. We've got an auditor shortage. Uh, you might recall that Parliament went into urgency to delay um, the auditing for government departments' accounts. We need to get those sorts of people in the country. Across the board, we need to be able to think about the skills that we might need to maintain the economy and to grow the economy and then help think about getting those people through. Are hotels the right way to be isolating people who are arriving in New Zealand? I think so for now. They've, they've actually worked quite well, but they are probably not a good long... I mean, they're, they'd be an OK long-term proposition, but we really need to have a look at whether we need um, purpose-built facilities. The Australians have started, uh, I think, work on a, on a facility that's around... Uh, holds about 2,800 people. Look, there are issues with that, um, but nevertheless, that's something that we should be looking at a lot harder and, and, and in a lot more detail. And what do you think of MIQ's capacity as it stands? Well, one, one of the observations that I'd make is that um, there is an allocation for business. It's being utilised. Um, the biggest challenge is, is actually for businesses to get get access to those spots by the, via the booking system. So that's the biggest challenge. I, I think that could be improved. There could be a direct channel for business uh, to, the, to MIQ, an account management process, for example, that would enable businesses to much more quickly and easily line up visas, airlines and then uh, MIQ spots. OK, well, we need to increase capacity in order to do that because, I mean, at the moment, it's pretty difficult for any Kiwis to get back in the country and find a spot. Yeah, I think that's again, comes down to the booking system and the way that that prioritises um, people who are trying to book. Uh, I think that there, is, there are still big gaps between mm. immigration. This is not necessarily true for um, you know, Kiwis returning, mm. um, but big gaps between the immigration system and the MIQ system, which need to be filled, and, and the airlines need to be a significant part of that. Australia has published a framework for what life might look like once the majority of the Australian population has been vaccinated, although of course Australia's uh, in the grips of a pretty serious outbreak at the moment. Singapore has published a pretty similar framework. Do you expect the New Zealand plan to look something like those countries? Yeah, I think it, it will be uh, pretty indicative, um, but again, I, I think there, there do need to be some clear points in it about uh, about when you might um, think about opening the circumstances, not that time frame. Um, actually, Australia and Singapore are quite different because Singapore, I, I think, has acknowledged that actually it's willing to live with some elements of COVID within the community. Mm. Um, that's a conversation that, that the government hasn't been really willing to have here. Um, and I don't think New Zealand citizens are ready for it. Um, but it is, it is something that other uh, economies and other uh, societies and other countries are considering and, and should be part of our conversation here. You hit on a really interesting point there. New Zealand citizens, you don't think are ready for it at the moment. And there are some people who think that New Zealanders have become absolutely intolerant of any virus whatsoever in our communities. Um, are people going to be ready for a message that perhaps puts business, you know, prioritises business ahead of public health measures or absolute public health measures? Oh, I mean, look, that's not what we're supporting at all. I mean, what, what we're suggesting is that the prioritisation process works uh, in, a, in, a, in a border framework that is already in existence. It's just a, it's just a better mechanism for managing um, mm. those business people who are coming through, all those critical workers or business people or whoever they are coming through the border under that, uh, in the, under that business allocation. Kirk Hope from Business New Zealand. Tēnā Thank you for your time. Kia ora. Up next, he started at a meatworks and ended up a sir, Ta Mark Solomon, on leadership, business and the future for Te Ao Māori.
Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. So Mark Solomon started his working career in a meatworks and rose to become one of Aotearoa's best-known Māori leaders. As the Kai Whakahaere, or leader of Kaitahu's tribal council, he led the South Island iwi through a period of huge growth and change. He has reflected on his life and experiences in a new memoir, Mana Whakatipu. Ta Mark Solomon, tēnā koe. welcome tēnā to Q&A. There is a thread that dominates all throughout your book and your story, and that thread is Whakapapa. So I want to start by asking you, ko waikwe, who are you? I call Mark Solomon Aho, no Ngāti Kūriki Kaikoura. Um, I'm a direct descendant of Tahu Pōtiki, the founder of the tribe of Naitahu. How many I'm generations the 22nd generation after him. 22nd generation, yes. all the way back to Tahu Pōtiki. Yes. Why is it important for you to be able to plot those generations in um, Kapapa? Well, as you can see, I'm, I'm a mixed race. My dad is Māori, my mum was English-Danish. But in the main, we were brought up with my dad's family. And uh, whakapapa is important. Um, I suppose my biggest bite of it was my grandfather was telling one of my aunties off she'd run her family down. And my grandfather said to her, you know, the trouble with you, you don't know who you are. It doesn't matter which who you run down, you're running yourself down. We are a tribe of cousins. See, that's interesting because um, in the book you, you bring up several occasions in which you've challenged other people's ideas around whānau and whanaunga and hapu yeah. and relationships and what actually brings people together. Do you think that people um, lack an understanding in both the Māori and Pākehā worlds of where they come from and how they're linked? I think a lot don't understand their, their background of their family. Um, but to me, has always been incredibly important. It's about who we are. Um, in fact, I made a challenge to Naitahu in 2015. In September 2015, the police commissioner just out of the blue sent me all the family violence stats for 2014. To say that I was shocked is an understatement. I was stunned at the scale of violence in this country. So in November 2015, at the annual general meeting, the Huyato, I always gave a State of the Nation address, and that particular one I opened up all the family violence stats on the screen. How do people react? Uh, shocked. I said, well, Naitahu, whether you like it or not, this encapsulates us, because some of us are involved in this. I'm consistently told that the foundation of our culture is whakapapa, and I totally agree with that. But that statement in this data has to lead to a question, and the question is, what are we doing about this? What you're saying is that if whakapapa is the foundation for your culture, then everyone bears a degree of responsibility. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I want to talk to you about leadership, and your leadership experiences began in your whānau. When you were 23 years old, yes. <laughs> you were placed in charge of family burials. Well, you... that sort of was, <laughs> we arrived, my grandmother had died, we arrived home and our uncles, you lot, get up that hill and dig our mother's grave and make sure you do a good job, it's our mother. Um, so we went up and at those days we didn't have a road, we had to climb the hill to the top of the Udapa. Get up the top, my older brother says, oh we need water, you go and get water. So down I come and I come back with water, get up there and he walked up to me, congratulations. What about? Oh while you're away we've had a meeting, you're now in charge of all burials. Don't I get a say? No, you would have lost, it was unanimous. Now here's your first job. Um, I thought I was in charge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, in my time I helped to bury 26 of my family. 
What's it like to dig a grave for someone in your whānau? Um, it's hard. It's also quite beautiful because what Tangi do brings us all back together and it reunites the family. Um, so while it's a, it's a sad time, it's also a time of rekindling the family connections. How did you carry that burden of responsibility? Um, it, it actually affected me quite interestingly. I'm pretty emotionless until after the burial, and that's when the death hits me, after. How so? I just put it aside. I've got work to do until it's over. So the last act for me in a tangi is the actual burial. Mm. Then I know it's final. And I usually have my breakdown on the way home afterwards. <laughs> you became the kaifakahaere for Te Runanga o Kaitahu just before Parliament passed that treaty settlement in 1998, I think it was. Three days. Yeah. So Kaitahu received a settlement of $170 yep. million. Was that a just outcome? Nope. I'll never accept that the Naitahu settlement was fair and just. There was an exercise done during the Naitahu Tribunal where the Tribunal put a question to Treasury. If Naitahu had been allocated all of its land reserves as guaranteed under the land sales, what in your opinion would be the 1988 value? That report back was between 12 and 15 billion. 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 Our advisors Credit Suisse First Boston argued 18 to 20 billion. The only offer put in front of Tartipani and the Trust Board was 170 million, take it or leave it. So no, I, it's about one and a half percent. But in saying that, I still voted personally in favour of accepting it. And I took a pragmatist view. If we couldn't build a capital future based on a $170 million capital injection, then it wouldn't matter what we get. So I, along with 93.6% of Naitahu voted in favour of accepting. When I finished, we finished at, I was, we were at 1.6 billion net. Wow. How did that happen? Can you, can you distill for us the, the Kaitahu investment philosophy? Um, I think the first big investment we did as a board is that we bought out an 80% shareholding of Shot Over Jet and then kept buying out until we eventually delisted and took the company over completely. Um, we had strategies on which direction we were going to look at and fishing was always going to be important. Uh, we wanted farming so we bought two 19,500 hectares in the Canterbury region. They were forests that had cutting licences on. Once the cutting licences had expired, they were to become our farming base. Mm. We've done 6,500 hectares to date. The other we've pulled to stop. Tourism was always going to be big for us. Um, so there was sort of a strategy of where we were going to go. Mm. Um, you've held many leadership roles over the years. You founded the Iwi Chairs Forum. You were the 2IC for the Canterbury DHB. And in that role, working for the District Health Board, you felt enormous frustration. Yes. What was that? With the Ministry. Um, some might call it the Ministry of Health, I call it the Ministry of Incompetence. I have never faced anything like I did as the Acting Chair of the Canterbury DSB uh, from an organisation like the Ministry of Health. Why was, was that? It was shameful. Um, simple little things. I had my first meeting on the 16th of December 2016. In January 2017, I was, along with two others from Canterbury, two new appointees, invited to Wellington for an induction. While at that induction, we were approached by the DG of Health, Chai Chua, 
would we like a tour of the Ministry of Health? We said yes, we walked into an ambush. Chai Chua, eight senior officials and a note taker and an hour's dump on how terrible uh, the Canterbury District Health Board and the Chief Executive of Canterbury was. And you must get rid of him, he's left a trail of debt and destruction, blah, blah, blah. We got lectured for nearly an hour. The note taker just sat there with a head down and then he made the statement, your staff are so bad that when the ministry staff come to Christchurch, they come back traumatised, refusing to go back. And when he said that, this woman looked up and mouthed the word to him, what? And I knew that he was lying, so I went straight on to defence. said, this is totally unacceptable. I was brought through here for an induction, not to listen to this garbage. So I left and he followed me out, the, the DG, and all the way, you've got to get rid of the CEO, blah, 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 blah. February, I was made the acting chair. I chaired my first meeting on the 16th of February, 2017. On the Monday, I'd rung the David Mates, the CEO, asked for a issues paper on health. Primary purpose of the hospital of deli is delivering health. So what are the issues and risks around health delivery? What extra issues and risks does the new builds add? And what extra issues mm. does the repairs add? A four-page paper was tabled at 9 o'clock on the Thursday. I explained to the board that I'd requested it in the main, it was for me and the new two, new two new directors, but it's only four pages. If we have a chance to read it at lunchtime, we'll have a quick discussion. At 10 o'clock, I'm handed a note from the Ministry. It has come to our attention, your Chief Executive has laid it to late paper. We demand a copy in Wellington by 3 o'clock, under the no surprises policy. I showed it to David, David just sent it to them. Mark, it's an information paper, David, mm. I'm not silly, but it's not worth the fight. Send it. Mm. So he did. Following day, my first meeting with Jonathan Coleman, the then minister. In that meeting, a one-on-one, -on -one, I explained to him that I was the first to agree that I was totally green to the field of health. In fact, minister, I've been on this role for two months and one day today. But what I can say to you already, minister, that it is patently obvious there is a full war on between your ministry and this DHB, but the problem is there's two totally different stories. Mm. So Minister, can I have your agreement please? Can I invite State Services Commission, Ministry of Health, Treasury and Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, given that they're all involved in this, to Christchurch to at least determine what is the issue? Yes. Well Minister, the board's next door and I said I was going to ask you this, but they don't believe you will. Can you tell them? So he did. We both left the building at the same time, him to come back to Wellington, me to go to Blenheim, because the following day I was to be chairing the Rangitani AGM. Mm. During that AGM, my phone went off. I never answered it until I got to the airport, and I literally held the phone here while a ministry official screamed at me over the phone. In the information paper, David had put, there is a potential of service failure by midwinter, meaning if Canterbury District Belfort got a big flu, we'd collapse. Mm. Well, this official screaming at me over the phone, you cannot use words like service value in your document. You will come to Wellington to explain yourself. You will come to Wellington with a resolution of how you're getting out of this mess. Mm. I ref just ignored the man. He didn't appoint me. I ran into him three weeks later and he started on it. Just stop, please. Mm. Just want to make sure the issues, I've got it correct. The issue is, in the paper, there is a potential of service value. Yes, you cannot use words like that in your documents. We've got a problem then, Houston. Here, here's a copy of 42 documents mm. that have gone to the ministry with that terminology and not one word. Now, they played games like that the whole way through. Do you think it's going to change? No.
No, I don't. The same people are there. Okay. We're running out of time, so I've got to ask you a couple of different questions. Clearly, you feel very strongly about I the do. state of I health. I do. I think David Mates and his management should be given a gold medal for what they did and how they kept that hospital system going, mm. which, by the way, the King's Fund of England holds up as one of the most integrated health delivery systems in the world. Let me ask this, Tamar. Is New Zealand a racist country? There are racists in this country and they come in all colours, mm. not just white. But in my view, and I, I say this because on the day that I was elected uh, as the chair, an elder said to me, well, boy, you're pretty white. And because of your skin colour, you'd never have seen how negative the South Island can be. Now that you're the chairman of an iwi, you're in for a massive, massive lesson in life. Because of that, I undertook a deliberate program of getting out in the community talking about the myths of the treaty settlements. Mm. In 2003, I think it was, I stood at our huiatou and said, well, this is what was said to me on the day I was elected. I'm sorry, Naitahu, I have not found what that elder said. I'm not naive, every society has its bigots and its racists, but happily, in my opinion, they're the minority, they're just noisy. What are the most important priorities in progressing Iwi Māori now? Um, the biggest thing for Māori is education, in all aspects, and it always has been. I was pretty proud. I did a roadshow across New Zealand in 99 to specifically to ask, you know, we've got the settlement, what are the priorities? The two top priorities we were given was the real and education in all of its aspects, from early childhood right through to second chance education initiatives for the elders. Mm. And we got that in every hui, and I think it was 3,800 Naitahu attended. Mm. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time, and thank you for the book. Oh, please. It's quite profound. I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you, Jack. Ta Mark Solomon. His book is Mana Whakatipu. After the break, Christchurch Mayor Leanne Dalzell on the personal reasons she's stepping away from politics. You know, people say that time's a great healer and hasn't really been my experience. It takes, it takes a lot away from, from your life, yeah. Kia the Christchurch City Council will this week revisit plans for the city's new multi-use stadium. It's likely to be one of the most contentious issues in what's left of Mayor Leanne Dalzell's time in office. After a career in national politics and three terms as Mayor of Ōtautahi, she won't seek re-election. I sat down with Leanne Dalzell and asked her to reflect on her time in office. And we begin with her experiences of the March 15 attacks. I think that at the time it was this state of disbelief that that could happen in New Zealand, let alone here um, in Ōtautahi Christchurch. It really, uh, it really hit home to me when um, I went out uh, with the Prime Minister the following day and met with members of the community and the extent of the trauma that had been inflicted. One week later at the call to prayer uh, where the Imam spoke those powerful words about how we were united, that we wouldn't be divided. Uh, and, and the Christchurch residents hadn't been invited to come, but they turned up. They just turned up in their thousands and this incredible feeling of unity and support and outpouring of love for a 
for a minority community within our city. It was really the most powerful thing I've ever witnessed in my life. You know, we ask a lot of our leaders in moments of crisis like that. Um, I mean, how did it personally affect you that period? Did you, did you find that it changed your kind of perspectives in life? I learned a lot about aspects of things that happen in the world uh, that made me feel um, really fearful of the future. Uh, and, you know, I, but, but it was really, I, I guess for me, that it is, it is the extraordinary capacity of um, people and, and the essence of humanity for the compassion to come through. As the former minister for ACC, would you like to see ACC support some of those witnesses and survivors from the shooting? Look, I've always feel, felt uncomfortable um, with the, the concept of criminal injuries compensation, which was the scheme that was wrapped into ACC. I always feel that the ACC scheme wasn't developed with this in mind. I, I, I would have liked to see a, a, a different approach. This was a, a really unique set of circumstances. Have those people had enough support? They've, they've had the support that a scheme that was designed for a different purpose uh, has offered. Uh, I'd like to think that there's more support that can be, um, can be uh, provided within a broader conversation. So um, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that that is a, is, is something that has been concluded yet. I think there is more that can be done. If you can cast all of your bias to one side and, and cast a critical eye over the city, where do you think Christchurch is at at the moment? Well, I think uh, Christchurch has turned a corner. A lot of people who come here from out of town who haven't been here for a while are, are very um, impressed with the direction that we're heading in and they can see the change. Uh, a lot of people have said to me, this is the place of the future. Uh, this is the place where I can see myself moving and uh, establishing myself here. What are the big challenges in continuing that progress? We've grown, um, but not just Christchurch, our outer reaches. So we're part of Greater Christchurch, which includes uh, the Selwyn and Waimakariri districts. And if anyone knows uh, the Christchurch area, then, and, and if you weren't thinking of separate districts, then you'd be thinking urban sprawl as you look at um, Kaiapoi and Pegasus and um, Ralston and uh, Lincoln and, um, uh, Rangiora, you know, just the growth that there has been. And then within our own city boundaries, the growth out in Wigram and Hallswell, as we really see the city reaching out into the country. Do you think it is good for the region to have that kind of spread? Well, no, it is hugely challenging because uh, what that does is that, and, and I kind of understand how it's happened because after the earthquakes, a number of the uh, planning changes that were expected or anticipated over time were fast-tracked 
and people essentially moved uh, from the weaker soils uh, to the strong soils that, and the gravels that, that sit um, on the outer reaches to our, our northwest and to our south. So as we, they moved away from the coast uh, and the softer soils, uh, we've ended up with what looks like um, urban sprawl. We are in the midst of a national conversation about the role and powers of central and local governments, what the three water reforms, the review of local government in New Zealand. As someone and who, the RMA reforms. Oh, it never ends. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the um, national policy statement on urban development. It's yeah. just a constant, um, a constant uh, move um, to, to, to debate really meaty um, and grunty issues that are so important for the future of our country. So where does your philosophy lie? Someone who's well, had uh, time in both worlds? Maybe not a one-size-fits-all. I think I have the advantage of having sat around the cabinet table. So when we look at three water reforms, I can understand uh, the minister and uh, her colleagues sitting around that table and analysing for the first time the extent of the underinvestment um, as well as the future investment that's going to be required not only to meet new drinking water standards but also to meet those environmental standards that are so connected to both wastewater and stormwater. More broadly though, do we entrust too much power and authority in local government? Well, I think that we haven't had the conversation about how the uh, role of local government has actually become more um, significant as we've started to realise that, you know, this planet has limits. So 30 years ago, there was a similar um, conversation about reform. Um, in 1989, uh, the focus was on amalgamation for size. This is different. This is actually about thinking about the extent of the future thinking and the complex decisions that need to be made now. And it's not so simple uh, as it was back then, I can tell you that. <laughs> Politics can be, a, can be a brutal business at the best of times. And I know that you lost your husband, Rob, last year. How important was Rob in supporting you through this period and, and during political campaigns? Well, I mean, that's why I'm not running again. Is, I mean, I'm not saying that I, I definitely would have, but I can't do a campaign without Rob. You know, he, he was my rock and, um, and uh, he was my biggest supporter too. You know, if, uh, if anyone attacked me, well then, you know, you know, he, he would just have a view about them and he would share that with me. So I, I was able to uh, cope with a lot more than I can do without him. So that, that's why, yeah, no, I miss him terribly. And, it, you know, people say that time's a great healer and hasn't really been my experience. Um, it, takes, it takes a lot away from, from your life, yeah. But uh, shall I tell you my story? Please. We, uh, when we were um, dressing Rob um, after he died, uh, um, we wanted a piece of Panamu, and he'd given his Panamu to you know his sons and and, and grandchildren, and 
so I said, well, my family gave him a piece of Panamo, so we'll, we'll, we'll give him that. And when the funeral director came back with his ashes, she said she'd never seen this before, but it came back in a whole piece. So this is, Rob sent this back to me, so always wear it. You carry him with you. Yeah. Have, have you had any contact with Bob Parker recently? No, um, other than um, other than he he did he did try to come to the twenty uh, second of February, the tenth anniversary, uh, and and he did come, but he couldn't remain, and he did ask me to to, to read his words. Um, on that day, which I felt very honoured and privileged to do. Uh, I saw the interview and, you know, my heart just just broke for him. You know, he was the voice of the city at our time of need. And, uh, you know, he'll be remembered for that. It's a rare thing in politics. Is it nice to be going out on your own terms? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no, look, and I'm not stopping work now. I've still got a few things to do. And, uh, and I'm not retiring um, at the end of this term, uh, but I am going to take a new direction in life. That is Christchurch Mayor Leanne Dalzell. Cool, Mutu. That is Q&A for this week. We've got a short program so that you can watch the Men's Olympic Marathon. Thanks, as always, to New Zealand On 